as promised, <laughs> we are covering IDP. Like we said a couple days ago, Tracy's book finally came out. Woo-hoo. Available on BardsandNoble.com and Amazon. Yeah, I think it's available now anywhere that books are sold. Really? I think online, yeah. Sweet. Which is super exciting. This is I this bought is mine ex- on Barnes and Noble. <laughs> I know. I know. So um I am Tracy. I'm Samantha. This is the suspended sentence. And this program is where this all started. Mm-hmm. This this all came from and the, how this all transpired. This is the basis of everything that that we do. So it seems like a fitting spot to start. Yeah, it also causes me a lot of anxiety doing this because Why? there well, because there was a lot of this was a hard program to write. It was a hard program to get going. There was a lot of legal bullshit involved in this. There was a lot of tens of thousands of dollars that I put into this program and defending myself and doing I mean there was a lot of there was a lot of politics involved in this program. Mm-hmm. And so even though it was incredibly successful um there was a lot of there was a lot of bullshit samantha yeah a lot um which i mean i don't i don't necessarily really want to get into all of that stuff in this podcast i want to talk about the good not the bad that that came from this but but yeah so (laughs) the book the book is about a prison reform program that i began five years ago and the program is called the Incarceration Diversion Program, IDP for short. And I started this program because of my interaction with my mental health position at, at the time and the overlap in, in the criminal justice program. And there was multiple clients that I had in the mental health field that were also engaged in probation and parole specifically. And we, I continually ran into barriers and problems with the direction that I needed to go in mental health and the limitations that were put on my clients from probation and parole. And the barriers and the limitations that were put on them from probation and parole stopped progress, literally stopped progress on a mental health basis. There was no <clears throat> continuity in services. There was no working together. There was no, there was none of that, Samantha. Mm-hmm. And there was constant barrier, 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 barrier. And we could get nowhere because of those limitations and because of the, the limitations that were put on by the system. things that I needed clients to do in order to move forward that they couldn't do because their probation officer told them not to. Right. And so, sorry, I've been drinking coffee and it's like stuck in my throat. Um, So instead of just sitting around bitching about it and throwing my hands up in the air and saying, no, I wanted to be part of the solution. And so I started out on this mission to solve the problem and to do what I could do to add to my field. And I started doing tons of interviews, tons of research as to how we can create a program where there wasn't territories and how there wasn't 
I'm the PO, so I'm in charge, or I'm the court system and I'm in charge, or I'm the mental health professional and I'm in charge. But trying to bring agencies together to work for the common good, which in these cases should be to habilitate the client, habilitate the, the person, right? The offender. Right. Which you would think solve the problem. Don't just go through the motions, right? And when I say that I traveled all over the United States, I mean from California to the East Coast. I went everywhere talking to people. I talked to judges, to probation officers, to um, to mental health professionals, and I created this team of people where we could sit down and we could talk about each individual person and problem and contributing factor to both criminality and probation and come up with a plan and a program to serve people. Because my stance is, is that prison should be reserved for the most dangerous. It should not be a housing facility to punish people. Yeah, There's other ways to hold people accountable without throwing them in prison. Mm -hmm. And we have a prison overcrowding crisis in America. And when you look at the number of people who are being let out to make room for nonviolent offenders, it's frustrating, right? Yeah, 100%. So I'm going to read a little excerpt from my book Ooh, okay. for you guys just to give you the kind of person that I am and, and, and where I'm at ethically, personally, from from my position of this program, okay? Okay. So this comes from the end of chapter one, I think. Um, and this is what I say. Growing up in Wyoming, I had the opportunity to be surrounded by ranchers. My father was an agriculture professor and I was raised on a ranch where cattle drives were a function of proper land management and livestock preservation. Preparation for moving cattle took days to orchestrate. Horses must be shod, bags packed, food prepared, and as many scenarios anticipated as experience will allow. Extra hands are appreciated and made the job easier, but that was not planned for nor expected. One person, usually the owner of the cattle, would lead the herd and one or two others on horseback will methodically move in and out of the cattle herd, ensuring that they continue to move and to keep cattle out of people's lands or from crossing rivers or places that are off the trail. One additional person would follow behind the herd. This per person is arguably the most, person, most important person of the crew. Their job is to stay back from the herd as not to push cattle too hard and to ensure that no cow or calf is left behind and that no cow or calf turns to head the wrong direction. You will never hear a rancher say that even one loss is acceptable if it can be prevented. And if all cattle are not accounted for upon arrival, you can be sure that everyone is looking for that cow until it's found. Not until it's dark or you're hungry until the cow is found. No loss is an acceptable loss. I was incredibly lucky to have been taught this lesson early in life, to be taught to see value in every living thing. It is impossible for me to create a prison reform program whose foundation is not built on this exact principle, that every life has value and no loss is acceptable if it can be prevented. Wow. But wow. that's but that's true. It is very true. That really is the way that I view human beings and life in general. So after my experiences and after all of my interviews and after everything that I did, I created this program. 
And the program, like I said, is called IDP. It serves as the bridge between prison, rehabilitation, and accountability. It is the link between all pertinent existing programs functioning in unison for maximum results. So not trying to create your own thing, but working with everybody. Bringing agencies together, bridging gaps to have everybody work together for the good of, of one person. It merges prison time, probation, individual and group therapy, mental health services, community service projects, education, monitoring, addiction services, echotherapy, and case management, all within the walls of one agency. Wow. The goal is to alleviate state costs associated with law violations, address the prison crowding crisis, bridge the gap between legal and habilitative services. It sounds complicated, doesn't it? It does sound a little complicated. It's not. IDP focuses on the 13 components of criminal thinking and behavior and works to stabilize each component independently. IDP identifies the strengths of the offender and builds upon those strengths. It's built on evidence-based, client-driven techniques. The offender sets their own goals and through support, guidance, and resources, the IDP representative assists them in achieving those goals. IDP does not require the offender to come to them, but rather IDP exists within the offender's environment. IDP representatives have no sanction authority. Um, therefore, it makes the relationship between the representative and the offender non-threatening, and there is no illusion of imbalance of power. IDP offers intense support to the offender, providing whatever resources are required for the offender to stabilize and to succeed. IDP monitors intensely the behaviors of the offender, more to guide them than to push them. Although illegal activities will be reported to law enforcement, the objective is to redirect behavior, not to control behavior. Okay. It's a complex fluid incarceration diversion program that focuses on per, um, participants' strengths and community involvements. It's backed again by evidence-based research and findings it incorporates every possible positive additive to ensure participant success. IDP identifies the why behind criminal thinking and behavior and aggressively addresses it in a humane and compassionate manner. While maintaining appropriate supervision, the goal is to be non-intrusive by not jeopardizing the stable elements of a participant's growth. That means... Tracy loves the why. <laughs> I do love the why. <clears throat> the why is important, but that means that the IDP representative is never going to show up unannounced at somebody's job and be like, I'm the PO, where is their schedule, da 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 We're not going to call people out of work to make them meet. We're not going to do that. We're not going to mess with stable functions of a person's life, which means that the IDP representative is going to have to do a little bit more. We're going to have to work after business hours. We're going to have to work on weekends. We're going to have to have those meetings and those groups after hours because, again, we're not going to mess with the things that are stable and good for the, for the person, which is not what traditional probation does. Mm -hmm. The 13 components to criminal thinking and behavior, as I have identified, are the following. And I say that these are key to success in both mental health, in criminality, in, in life. If these 13 things are not stable, you're going to have a train wreck. The 13 components are number one, education, then employment, 
then substance addiction, then family, budget and financing, support systems, leisure time, housing, antisocial thinking, antisocial behaviors, antisocial peers, antisocial personality, and medical and physical health. Those are my top 13. IDP does not view one component as more important than the other, and IDP views each component as imperative to program success. We are achieving complete habilitation, which means each area of one's life must be as stable as possible. Many of these components will overlap, and all of them will work off of each other to create overall stability. In addition to these base components, we also throw in equine therapy, echotherapy, service projects, aftercare, and mentoring as needed. Although IDP is classified as a probation program due to the oversight that it provides and the relationship between IDP and the court system, IDP is exactly what the name says it is. It's an incarceration diversion program. It is habilitative, not corrective in the sense that we're accustomed to. So the mission again is, um, the mission of IDP is to provide felony incarceration program that addresses mental illness and substance abuse to nonviolent offenders as an, inter- as an alternative to prison. The goal of IDP is to alleviate state costs associated with law violations, address the prison overcrowding crisis, and bridge the gap between legal and human habilitative services. And the vision is that families stay together Offenders receive access to overall habilitation and an alternative to incarceration is offered. Wow. Okay, so that sounds super complicated. Yeah, so... So break it down in in layman terms? Yeah. Okay, so... IDP is for nonviolent felons. Okay, That's super important. It's nonviolent. So it's people who have committed felonies who would go to prison... We're not talking about sex offenders. We are not talking about murders, violent crimes, anything with weapons, nonviolent felonies. And instead, what I'm saying is with this program is that instead of sending them to prison, let me work with them and let me rebuild a life for them. There's two, there's two important words here that, that I focus on habilitative, not rehabilitative. Mm -hmm. Habilitative is to create something new. Rehabilitative is to bring back to, right? It's to rebuild. Mm -hmm. I don't want to rebuild anything with my participants. I want to create an entirely new life. Why in the world would you put somebody back in the same situation that they were in before they committed a crime or before, before their action happened? Why would you do that? That doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. At all. But I also don't want people to go to places like halfway houses or superly controlled environments because I want them to learn to exist in the environment that they belong in. Mm-hmm. Because anybody, anybody can, can be sober or be good if you have a concrete schedule and people watching you all the time. I want people to learn how to exist in their world. Right. Right? So nonviolent felonies, that's important. Um, and to get into this program, people had, there was a pretty intense screening process also. 
Um, I, I did ASIs. I did psyche valves. I didn't do them. I had them done. Um, I did massive interviews with them, not only them, but their families. And I created a team for them before they were even in the program. I created a team that, in, that included their family members, mental health professionals, um, law enforcement officers. I mean, I involved as many people as I could in building a team to ensure success of, of my participants. Um, it was a very difficult program to get off the, off the ground. Everybody saw value in it, um, but it was very, very difficult because again, we have these territories, right? So I got a, um, I met with um, several district court judges, um, got a pilot judge um, who was on board to do this, who was involved in, in a lot of the, the legalities of how we were going to do it. Um, and, and I got my first participant in December of 2017. He was um, convicted of his fourth and 10. That means four DUIs in 10 years. In the state of Wyoming, your fourth DUI in 10 years is a felony. It is, the sentence is three to five years in, in prison. Wow, okay. So that's the sentence that that carries. <clears throat> so I say this in my book also. If you were to line up a million first graders against a wall and you said, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to be with you? And you recorded it. <clears throat> Not one of those kids is going to say, I want to be in prison. Right. Not one is going to say, I want to be a criminal. Not one of them. Nobody is going to say that at that age. Something happens along the way, trauma, something, something happens that gets in the way here that causes addiction. And IDP is specifically for people with mental health, substance abuse, and, and criminal thinking, the antisocial thinking. That is the, that is the demographic that I'm, that I'm targeting in this program is people, substance abuse, mental health, who are involved in the criminal justice system, nonviolent offenders. Right. Something happens. And we can throw them in jail all day long if that's what you want to do and we can keep the door revolving. You can throw them in what I call spin cycles of rehab for 30, 60, 90 days. It's a spin cycle. Mm -hmm. It gets them sober. Yeah. How many people go back? If you don't address the why, if you don't figure out why someone is drinking, why somebody is doing drugs, why are they doing these things? you're never going to solve the problem. The problem is never that they got the fourth and 10. The problem is something else. We're going to find out the why and we're going to address it and we're going to build a world or a or a, a a life for these people where the risk outweighs the benefit. The other way around. <laughs> where they're not going to jeopardize it, right? Because if you have if you have things, people don't gamble with things that they value. They don't. Yeah. So we're going to create that. And we do it very, very well. The other thing that IDP created was an aftercare program that was long-lasting. And this was very, very cool to do. My mentor, um, who is a Native American therapist, who I absolutely love. I have so much respect for this man. Uh, he and I created this aftercare program. And it was... Um, 
both individual and group sessions. But in these sessions, we never talked about addiction. Hmm. We never talked about where they were. We talked about where we were going. I say this a lot. Someone will never, ever change if you continually remind them of what they did. You cannot move past if what your mistake was is continually thrown in your face. Mm -hmm. You have to be moving forward. So through this aftercare program, we learned about things such as the difference between IQ and AQ, how our brain works. We learned about emotional regulation. We learned about um, mind mapping. We learned about self-discovery so that we could identify triggers. And also, and this is important, I believe, and it's a huge part of of my program, was um, everybody had to get individual mental health care. They had to meet with a therapist that was not close to me, that, you know, was completely separate. And and that relationship with with their therapist was completely confidential, which is not something that traditional probation does. Typically, there's a release of information that is signed and there's open communication between the PO and the therapist. I don't think that there's anything more out of line in the world than that. Because I believe that what is said in a therapy session stays in a therapy session. Right. And when you break that trust, you've... You can't get that back. No, that's done. And it's a violation. It's a huge violation of trust and personal boundaries. And I require in my program that they see a therapist for a minimum of 18 months. Oh, wow. Right. And so that is the common reaction. What? Yeah. Because therapy sessions should be in and out, right? No, they shouldn't be in and out, especially if you're dealing with addiction. Why? Because you have trigger dates. If someone is drinking because they had a significant loss, it is 100% the result of something tragic or traumatic that happened on a specific date. If it was a loss of a loved one, you're going to have, and, and I had my, my fifth participant, my fourth participant in the program was exactly that. She had lost her mother and her husband in six months. Wow. She had never before she was in her 40s ever had a drink. But she was so consumed with grief that she started drinking and she turned to alcohol to numb that pain. And then it turned into, she got four DUIs in 10, in 10 years. Mm-hmm. At you know 60 years old, she is now being sentenced to five to seven years in the state pen. Eek. Right. Did she, did she deserve? Did she break the law? Yes. Can she be helped? Also, yes. Right. And... So with her specifically, she has Mother's Day, Father's Day, death dates, hospitalization dates, Valentine's Day, anniversary days, all of these trigger dates that she's birthdays, Christmases, holidays, that now she doesn't have her mother or her husband. Right. These are huge, significant trigger dates where on those dates, she's going to be overcome with grief and her predictability, her chances of drinking again are going to be high. Yeah. And so if you're there and you know those dates and you're being conscientious of that, you can be there to offer support and resources to them. Mm -hmm. But that's the premise of IDP is like 
I didn't, I didn't take 30 clients. I didn't take 30 participants in my program because I can't serve 30 people. Mm-hmm. There's a limitation on how many people that you should be able to work with in order to do your job effectively or to serve people, which is, which is ultimately what it is. It's about serving people, helping people. And so I only had seven people in my program, um, which was a lot. It was a lot. They had to, you know, and in the beginning, there were tears. In the beginning, you know, they had to provide me with a schedule. They had to, um, you know, they had to check in. They had to have conversations with me. They had to, but, but what happened was, and this is, is there are some people out there who, who really form relationships with their probation officers and whatever. We were an extension of family. The entire group would get together. We all supported each other. We all, it was phenomenal. It was phenomenal. And the loyalty that these people had to me and that I had back to them was was pretty cool. Um, we definitely went through a lot together. And we'll do an entire episode later on one of, on um, some of the things that happened in the program that were um, pretty phenomenal, um, phenomenal things that we did. But but everything that we did was together and the communication was open. But but from the very beginning, it was, the conversation literally was, I will be your greatest asset or I will be your greatest liability. And I can handle absolutely anything that happens, anything that you say, any 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 action that you make, as long as you're forthcoming and you're honest with me. You lied to me once, you're out of my program. And being upfront and honest like that from the very beginning got rid of a whole lot of bullshit in the right, program. Yeah. Because it was like, okay, these are my cards. This is what this is what my expectations are of of you are. Now, what are your expectations of me because we're a team? Mutual respect. Mutual respect and mutual like do you expect me to answer the phone when you call me at one o'clock in the morning? Oh you do? Okay, then I expect you to do the same for me. Do you expect me to have your back? Then I expect you to have mine. Do you expect me to return your text messages and to offer, you know, the resources that I said that I would? You expect me to do what I say I'm going to do? Okay, then I expect you to do what you say also. And if this trust and this mutual loyalty is not is not reciprocated, we're done. We can't do this. Mm-hmm. Right? So how the sentencing worked was people would get, participants would get, would get ordered to three to five years, five to seven years. One person, um, I think, was ordered to 10 to 17 years in prison, suspended under the condition that they that the, they did my program. So because there was no state statute allowing my program and it was a pilot program, they were ordered to seven years, let's just say, of unsupervised probation. And as a condition of the probation, they had to fulfill the requirements of IDP. So they were ordered to me for five to seven years. It also says in there that if I violated them or if they did not meet the conditions, that they would 100% serve the entire term Starting of their... from the time they go in? Yes. So even if they did two years with you, they'd have to serve their five to ten? They it's would have to serve... Served. No. No. If they violated the terms of IDP, they would have to serve every day of their sentence. Because this was a huge opportunity. Right. It was a huge opportunity. They got to continue work. They got to be with their family. They got to, I mean, they, this was a huge diversion. This was a huge, 
And it was a pilot program. And so the judge was very nervous. Yeah. You know, this has never been done before, ever. This was never done in the history of the criminal justice system that a private entity got to do this, had the opportunity to do this. So the pressure was pretty great on this. Um, We did it flawlessly. And when I say flawlessly, I mean 100% success rate flawlessly. Beautiful. This program worked. This program did save to the Wyoming state taxpayers over a half a million dollars in incarceration rates and flawlessly. Within the first two years, every participant had gone back to school and gotten either an associate's degree or a certification of some kind. Every participant was with their family. Every participant was earning a great wage had a great stable career in front of them. Every participant was clean and sober. Every participant had um, had participated in and started their own community service long-term program that they were participating in. Two of the participants um, had children. One of them got married. Um, everybody was doing phenomenal. The things that we did, that they did, in taking advantage of this program was phenomenal. Before they were in IDP, there were two families, three families that utilized state welfare programs, like pretty significantly. Mm -hmm. None of the families after one year was on any state assistance whatsoever. Wow, so then you take into that cost as well. Right, they did phenomenal. And what is the difference and why is this? Because when I say 100% success rate, that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. Why did that happen? I'll tell you. Because when you give a shit about people and you invest in people, they invest back in you. Right. When, especially after when you take people who are individuals who have the trauma that these people do and someone is like, okay, I'm here and I actually mean it. Like, I'm going nowhere. No matter what we do, no matter what you go through, I am standing right here next to you and I'm fighting with you. How long did it take for you to build, like... The trust that you did with people, though. Because a lot of these people you didn't know very well before coming into the program. I didn't know. I didn't know at all. So, and there's also, like, like you said, this is four and tens that Mm -hmm. is getting them into into this program. So if that's the case, they've already dealt with some sort of probation, probably the justice system, which... Yeah. Is very different than what you're doing. Very so different. how do you build how did how long did it take to build that that trust and what really what do you think was that made them trust me and want to be on your team like this um it was the first meeting it it was the it was the very first interaction because i have i have everything i had everything laid out i mean we're talking when i went in to meet with them for the first time it was 50 pages of contract basically um where absolutely everything is laid out and i was completely and super transparent and by the time we make it through the screening process um they know that i mean business and i'm not somebody to be trifle with and i know whether or not they're going to be a good fit there were probably 30 people that i said no to Really? Absolutely. I tell them in the very beginning, like I said, I will be your greatest asset or I will be your greatest liability. Do not lie to me. 
give it to me straight, be completely transparent, don't play games with me, or this is going nowhere. And by the time they tell me their story, and then I verify the story, I go and I talk to people that they've worked with. I talk to the victims of the crime. I talk to law enforcement officers. I pull files. I meet with family members. I talk to their kids. I you know, talk to their neighbors. I have a really, really good feel for who they are, generally, not generally, very specifically. And if they lied to me at all, I'm not working with them. So I, I worked with people who wanted to work with me, who wanted to engage in the program and the services that I had to offer. And they knew straight up what I was going to require of them, what it was going to be spelled out every moment of their life for the next three to five years. And if they were on board with that, you know, it, it was good. And also, by the time you get to that point where you're going to court and saying, okay, your honor... He's a he or she or they are a good fit for my program. I'm getting them out of a five year prison sentence. That loyalty right there. Right. You know, I mean, they've got some skin in the game also. <clears throat> now, one other thing that was huge to taxpayers and to the court system and to legislators is this they had to pay to be in the program. Oh. They had to pay for their own services. And we've touched on this a little bit before where some jails, while someone is incarcerated, will provide a work program, a work release program, Mm -hmm. where the inmate can get out of jail to continue working. The fee that our local jail charged for people to get out of jail for the day to go to work was $125 a week. So my fee to be in the program mirrored that. It was $300 a month to be in the program. Okay. Which, tell me what you would pay for freedom. Yeah. To get out of, to get out of, of prison. Be able to work, still support your family. Be there for holidays. Be there for a birthday. What would you pay? What is your freedom worth? Probably more than $300. Oh, my God. <laughs> Absolutely. And it was less than what the jail was charging for them to get out on work release, right? Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> I thought that that was fair and good because it also diverts the money from the taxpayers. To their responsibility. To their. They are accountable for what they did. Mm-hmm. So they need to pay for that. Financially, which, I mean, what is the best way to make somebody accountable? I mean, it's money. Mm-hmm. Money and freedom. Yeah. The program was extremely successful. It was, it was very successful. Um, my, um, and everybody is doing great. Everybody is doing great. We, nobody has reoffended. Nobody, I mean, knock on wood, but, you know, it, weren't, it went great. And now that the program is, is done and everybody has graduated from the program, um, we still keep in contact. We still, but, but I also in the program didn't just provide the services to the offender. We provided services to the family. It was overall complete support. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I mean, I helped some of the wives get enrolled in college and find funding for that. And I went to their kids's, I threw a baby shower for one of my participants. Right. I mean, we were. They, there was not an imbalance of power at all. We were a team. 
And that was the approach that I took. It's interesting when I was researching this, how probation started, um, clear back, you know, in the boondocks or back in the, <laughs> in the dark ages, the man who actually started probation, his name was John Augustus. And he had this same theory that, that I had. And when I found it, when I found him and learned this, I was like, oh, somebody else who had the same ideology that I did. He was a shoemaker in Boston, Massachusetts in um, 1840. And he had a vision of helping people that were involved in the life of crime, same way that I did. Um, he, and he advocated fiercely for the fair treatment of criminals. Okay. He was super kind. He believed that people could change and they deserved a better shot than sometimes life gave them. The same vision that I have. Um, during... 1841 to 1859 he at the age of 56 made a deal with the judge there to release criminals to his supervision rather than sentencing them to prison or jail the exact same thing that i did um, he would meet with individuals accused of crimes and make the choice of whether or not he wanted to work with them same way that i did <laughs> and then um when the judges agreed to do that the offenders were unofficially released to his care. But the judge back then said, okay, if they screw up, it's on your head. Like, I'll hold you accountable. Which, you know, made him a little bit of, you know, like, uh, I don't know if I would be like, oh my gosh, if so-and-so failed, then I would have to go to jail for prison for five years. I don't know that I would have. Yeah, <laughs> that I, don't know if that's right that I would be down with that. But, but what he did was he would pay their bail and he would get them out and these people were so loyal to him just because that that he did that that almost all of them were successful. Oh wow. It's that loyalty. It's that somebody standing beside you, somebody helping you. So anyway, so he died in um 1859, but it was it was because of him and because of what he did that probation was even established. Wow. And the first official probation officer started doing that kind of stuff. I mean, it was, you know, eight years later or 20, 18 years or whatever later, but <clears throat> in like 1878. But because of him, probation and parole began. And I think that probation and parole just has way too many people in their program They're, that they lose sight. Of why it started. That these are, well, they're, and they're people, okay. you know, and... The probation and parole program, I don't think, is used for the reason that it should be used for. Mm -hmm. And that's unfortunate. But I, I wish that there were more programs like IDP out there that people were able, you know, to use. I wish that um, IDP would have gotten the steam that it needed to go nationwide, which was ultimately the goal of it. Um, it, it did not. You know, there's... That's a whole nother topic about, you know, the revolving door of the judicial system and how people are a dollar sign. They're not, they're not, humans. they're not humans. They're not people. They're, and I believe that people are more than the sum of their worst and their best day that's sitting in a file on some county attorney's desk. People are more than that. And if you sit down and you talk to them, you realize that. So... IDP, the 13, the 13 Components to Criminal Thinking and Behavior, my book, is, is about this program. It, um, there is, in the back of the book, 
um, letters that were written by each of each of my participants. It outlines in depth what each of the components are and how we worked through those and why they were important. And hopefully somebody picks that book up and reads it and has the funding and the um, the support to take a program like this nationwide. Hopefully probation and parole maybe reads it and, and says, yeah, okay, maybe things. we can do better because we can do better. Not everyone deserves to be in prison. Not everyone needs to be there. And our tax paying money can be better, better utilized to help people instead of focusing on punishing people. Yeah. Because there's, there isn't, there isn't many addicts and I'll use that word in air quotes. There aren't very many addicts that say, Oh, this is the life that I want. Right. You know, most people need help and help is not available to them. Mm-hmm. And they, they want better. They need better. They acknowledge that their children and their family members deserve better. They just can't get there. Yeah. And that's sad. It's, but that's, that's the world that we live in. But it's a world that we can change. Mm-hmm. And we can change and we can fix it. And we can do better. We can do better. So the book is available, like Samantha said, Barnes and Noble, um, Amazon. Amazon. It's online. You can get it. Um, it's exciting. It is it's exciting. exciting, and I, I really do, Samantha. I hope that the right people pick up that book and they read it. Yeah, I do. I, I, I hope that so much because, like I said, I wanted this program to go nationwide. Um, it did not. It got. It got stopped. You know. Um, which is a whole different episode and a whole different thing, but well, that's kind of where, um, because like we've talked about, like Tracy sent the books over, sent the book over to me to like read chunks of and give feedback, and so we we started. She's you know I I was going through this with her, and when I tell you that there's a lot of passion and heart in this book, there's a lot of passion and heart in this book. And that came from from there that kind of spread into us doing this podcast. Yeah. Because it's an overall dysfunction, it kind of feels like, you mm-hmm. know? And your knowledge and the things you've done gives you a completely different insight into a lot of these cases and things that we talk about than a normal person would have. Yeah. Because... You've been in the trenches and you've been, you've done, you've done the work for this. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of where the idea to do the podcast also came from. Right. Because we have a voice and the right person, it's like you said, the right person picks up the right, the book, the right person listens to this episode. Change starts on a very small scale. It does. And it's one person. One person implements a great deal of change. Um, But, but it's important. I mean, for me. People matter to me. Mm-hmm. Genuinely, people matter. And I, everybody matters. Everybody has a story. And one person's story is not more significant than somebody else's. And, and prison reform and, and addiction and mental health, very, very important topics to me. Yeah. Very important. And it isn't, it isn't just that person's problem. It's a social problem, not problem, issue barrier and and we all we all have a social responsibility to it 
we get so wrapped up in our in our own day-to-day stuff and and responsibilities that I do you even know your neighbor? I don't know my neighbor. Right. We used to have block parties when I was a kid. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like it's we, a different world. It yeah, it's different and we're we're more concerned about ourselves and our own issues and I don't know, people matter to me. And there is a lot of heart in my book. And my entire program is based on love, mm-hmm. which is not a word that is allowed in the criminal justice system. Love is like, oh my God, what did you just say to them? You know? Yeah. Not getting too involved with people, not. Yeah, setting those clear boundaries and whatever. Boundaries do not exist with me. They do not. When you're, if. If one of my participants would call me, I'm not kidding, at 2 o'clock in the morning, I answered and I was there. Right. Because that's what I vowed to do. Right. So thanks for joining us today. Um, we'll put a link up on our Instagram. Thanks for listening. Um, go get the book. Talk about it. Talk about the program. If you have questions, and I'm sure you, I'm sure you will, that's okay. just a real overview. The, the program is super, it was super fluid. It changed. There were a lot of different resources that that were available and that we did. Um, But it really wasn't that complicated. It really wasn't. It really wasn't. It was more commonsensical than it was. It was really. The meat and potatoes of it. Yeah. It wasn't. Once you have the basis, it was like, okay, if, if somebody needed something, it was provided to them. It was not complicated. It was not a big deal. But it did take a lot of time. And a lot of attention and a lot of love. Right. And this, I just, I know I didn't give a lot of commentary today through this, but I think it was important to hear your why. Yeah. Because the why matters. 100%. I'm proud of you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for being here. Stay safe.